some mic trouble here. My mic dropped off my back, my belt there. That was awkward. Well, welcome. We are glad you guys are here. Uh, for those of you that are joining online, uh, thank you for choosing to jump on the live stream this morning. As JD said, we are starting a new series this morning. We're going to dive into the book of 1 Timothy uh, for the next several months, and I'm excited. And as we dive into that, I, I thought it'd be appropriate to share with you a little bit about uh, myself. I've had um, really since kind of August, September of 1998, I've had the same pretty much identical daily routine. And I've had the same annual routine. So every morning since about 1988, I get up and one of the first things I do is I put my contacts in because I have really poor vision. And so if I took my contacts out right now, I, I wouldn't be able to see anything. I mean, everything would be a blur. Uh, and so because I have to do that every day, that means once a year I have to go to the eye doctor and, uh, and get my eyes checked because they're continually getting worse as I get older. And so if you've been to the eye doctor, you know you sit down, maybe take off your glasses, your contacts, and they put this thing over your eyes, and they begin to use these dials to uh, take you from, a, for, for me, like a period of I can't see anything, to slowly dialing in and helping me to get to a spot where I can see really clearly. And so it's, you know, it's, gonna, it's one or two, uh, uh, two, okay, well, two or three, uh, three, three or one. And they kind of keep doing that until they zero in on you've got clear vision. And uh, the reason I share that with you this morning is because what we're going to be trying to do over the next several months is using the book of 1 Timothy, we're going to try and dial in our focus. Because we live in a world right now that is filled with chaos and confusion and a lack of clear sight. And like the church that we're going to be looking at this morning uh, in the first century, we need to find a way to bring it back into focus. And we're going to do that through the book of 1 Timothy. So I want to let you know that's where we're headed for the next several months. I do want to let you know that in the middle of this series on 1 Timothy, we're going to take a small break and we're going to spend a couple weeks talking about sort of a, a series within a series. Um, what is the Christian's responsibility as it relates to government and elections and all that stuff? I don't know if you guys know, we have an event coming up in early November that a lot of people are getting uh, frothed up about. And so we want to equip you as a body to know what is our responsibility if you call yourself a Christian uh, as it relates to government. And I'll give you a hint. It has nothing to do with elephants or donkeys. It has everything to do with lions and lambs, the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God. And so we're going to help equip us to be thoughtful as we head into November. So that's what the next several months look like. What I want to do today is I want to kick us off in the series. And so I'm going to divide our time really into two big parts. One, part one is going to be, I want to give us an overview, a high-level overview of the book of 1 Timothy. And then I want us to look at the first 11 verses in 1 Timothy, specifically, um, how, uh, sort of what those verses mean, and then kind of what do we do with that? How do they apply to our lives today? So that's where we're headed. We're going to look at kind of the, 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 the high level, the first the whole book, the who, the what, the where, all those kind of things. And then we'll dive into a specific section of the, uh, the letter. So first thing to know is this is actually not a book. It's a letter. So we are going to get to read someone's mail. Uh, the New Testament epistles are letters that men have written to churches or to people. So we're reading somebody's mail. It's illegal for us today to do that, uh, but we're going to be okay in God's word. 
It was written by Paul. So this is a letter to Timothy written by Paul. And just by way of reminder, Paul is the guy who wrote 13 of your 27 New Testament books. If you don't know his background story, it's pretty wild. He was a very religious Pharisee. His name was Saul. Um, And he's going to tell us in this book that before he came to meet Jesus, he was a blasphemer and a persecutor of the faith. And so if you go back in Acts 7, uh, you'll see that he was responsible, Paul was responsible, for signing off on the execution of Stephen. So the first Christian martyr after Jesus was a guy named Stephen. He was stoned to death. And Paul took responsibility for that action. You can read that in Acts 7 and 8. And so this man... This man that's writing this letter that wrote 13 of your New Testament letters has a really troubled past. And I'd be remiss if I didn't just remind you right from the beginning that I don't know what your story is. I don't know what is in your background, what things you have done, what things uh, have been done to you by others. But I want to remind you that whatever your backstory is, Jesus Christ can bring wholeness and healing and restoration into your life. And so if you are like Saul and your background is crazy checkered and colored, Jesus can change your name like he did from Saul to Paul and change everything so that one day this man could raise his hand and say, follow me as I follow Christ. So I don't know where you are, but I want you to know Jesus can bring healing and wholeness in your life. Okay, so that's who has written this letter. It's written by the apostle Paul. Who is he writing it to? He's writing it to a guy named Timothy. Now we know from Acts 16 that Timothy met Paul in Lystra. We know that Timothy has a Jewish mother and grandmother, and we know that Timothy has a Greek father. We don't know much about his father. We do know a little bit about his mother, Lois, and his grandmother, Eunice, and how they brought him up in the scriptures. They were believers. And evidently, Paul and Timothy hit it off really quickly. And um, Paul was so encouraged and impressed by Timothy's heart and his desire to learn his faith in Jesus. He said, hey, Timothy, why don't you come with me on my travels, and you can help me, and I'll train you, and I'll work with you, and we'll do this together, co-workers. And so Timothy jumped in with him. And over the years that followed, over the years and decades that followed, Timothy and Paul created, forged this amazing relationship, this amazing friendship. Timothy's actually mentioned, uh, I think, 18 times in the New Testament by Paul. 18. Paul calls Timothy his fellow worker in Romans. He calls him his beloved and faithful child in 1 Corinthians. He calls him his um, brother in 2 Corinthians. And in Philippians... Paul goes so far as to say, I have no one else like Timothy. So there was a great relationship there. Now, what's important to know, specifically as it relates to where we're going today, is that not only were they co-workers, but Timothy was Paul's what's called apostolic representative. That's a big word. Let me try to unpack it for you because it's important. So imagine that I were to tell my uh, 15-year-old daughter, Caroline, hey, Caroline, I'd like you to go upstairs and I'd like you to tell Lillian and Madison, that it's time for them to clean their room and get ready for bed. And if Caroline goes upstairs, she's going to deliver that message. And my expectation is that Lillian and Madison will follow the instructions, not because Caroline asked them, but because I asked them. And if they disobey, they're not disobeying Caroline, they're disobeying dad. And we don't want to do that. Okay? So that's what an apostolic representative means. It means that Timothy was Paul's representative. Now, what's the big deal about Paul? Well, Paul was an apostle, like the, other, uh, like the other 11. So if you take out Judas, the other 11 were apostles. And in the New Testament, that's a technical term. It means somebody who was with Jesus, taught by Jesus, and commissioned by Jesus to go. And Paul 
as you guys may or may not know, was not part of the 12, right? He came to faith in Jesus in the book of Acts, but he saw the risen Christ. And the risen Christ told Paul, I am commissioning you to go to spread my message. And so Paul had a commission. And so it was Paul's authority that he was able to go and preach the gospel. And so he tells Timothy, hey, Timothy, you're going to be my apostolic representative. And so what I'm sharing with you, Timothy, you are to share to the church in Ephesus, which we'll find out in a second here. And if they don't obey you, it's not that they're disobeying you. They're disobeying me as an apostle. Okay? So that was, that's Timothy's role. That's his function in Ephesus, which is where this letter is written to. It's written to Timothy and the context, the place, the where is the church in Ephesus. Now, we know from the book of Acts uh, that Paul spent a long time in Ephesus. He spent three years in Ephesus. We also know that Ephesus was a major first century town. It was a major port center. It was a major hub of commerce and business and wealth. It was also a major hub for idolatry. There was a temple there to the goddess uh, uh, um, Diana or uh, Artemis. And um, in fact, it was, the temple was so beautiful. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. And so it was a major pagan center. So you've got this huge city, this major important city. It's a lot like Dallas, it's a big city, a lot of things coming and going. Uh, there's a lot of idol worshiping going on in Ephesus. And so we know Paul tells us, or Luke tells us, excuse me, in Acts, when he's recording Paul's journeys, that when Paul goes to Ephesus to share the gospel, the gospel makes such a significant impact in this city that the men in the city who were responsible for making and selling idols, little metal idols, they got so upset because they began to see their livelihood about to be flushed down the toilet. Because if you know Jesus, you don't need to worship anything else. And so these guys said, hey, our livelihood is about to be in jeopardy. And so they caused a riot and they caused all kinds of trouble. So we know that uh, Ephesus was a place Paul spent three years in, that it was a city where, where the gospel was hotly contended, um, and uh, Paul was heavily invested in that church. We have a letter to the, you know, the book of Ephesians, the letter to Ephesians was written to that church. Okay, so that's the who by Timothy, I'm sorry, by Paul to Timothy, uh, specifically dealing with the church in Ephesus. Now, what's the big deal? What's going on in Ephesus? Well, what we're going to see as we move through the book over the next coming months is that this church was entrenched in um, false teaching, in disorder, in chaos. They were not in focus. Okay, and we know Paul in Acts 20, after he spends three years with this church, he's getting ready to leave, and he tells the Ephesian elders. Here's what he tells the elders as he's leaving. Acts 20, 28 to 31. He says, Paul to the elders, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, and they're not going to spare the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And so Paul, evidently, after having spent three years with, these, with this church and these people in this town, knew that when, I, when he left, it was likely that the waters were going to get rough. And so he was trying to prepare the elders of the church, get ready, be on your alert. When I leave... You better be expecting wolves to try and make their way into the flock. And sure enough, within a few years after Paul's departure, the wolves found their way in. And Paul decided to dispatch Timothy as his apostolic representative to the church. And then he follows that up with a letter to Timothy to help encourage and strengthen and guide Timothy and the church. Okay? So that's what's going on. Make sense? Okay. 
If you were going to ask me what's the key verse of 1 Timothy, I would take you to 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. And it says, Paul says, hey, Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. I want you to know, Timothy, how you're supposed to behave in the household of God. We need to bring this group of people back into focus and how we behave in the household of God. Some of the themes we'll, we'll talk about over the next coming months, you'll hear the term doctrine, doctrine will come up a lot. Like, hey, this, this idea of sound teaching and truth. You're going to hear a lot about godliness. It's used 10 times in the book. What does it look like to live a life that is characterized by um, devotion and respect and admiration for God? We're going to talk about church leadership. What does that look like? And we're going to be hopefully doing what the sermon series is called. We're going to bring us back into focus. Paul is going to tell Timothy, Timothy, your task at the church in Ephesus is to bring these guys back into focus. And he's going to give him really five ways he wants him to do that. He's going to want him to help bring him back into focus out of the chaos by reasserting sound doctrine. He wants Timothy to help them uh, to resist unruly behavior in the church. He wants Timothy to put in place and maintain strong, godly leadership. He wants Timothy to keep prayer and orderly worship at the forefront of the church. And he wants Timothy to model a life of godliness that others can imitate. That's going to be the recipe, if you will, for bringing that church back into focus. Now, I don't want you to be fooled by the fact, by the placement of this letter in your New Testament or what it's called. So this book is often, 1 Timothy is often lumped together with 2 Timothy and Titus. And they're often called the pastoral epistles, which is a little bit unfortunate because it gives you the impression, it gives us the impression as the reader that this, these letters are only for pastors. And that's not true. Timothy would have received this letter, he would have read the letter and then he, uh, himself, and then he would have read the letter to the church because Timothy was Paul's representative. This is not a letter just for guys that stand up front on weekends and teach God's word. This is a letter for the church, Okay. Not just for pastors, but for the church. By the way, if you're curious, uh, the reason those are lumped together like that is the New Testament epistles by Paul are in order in your Bible from longest to shortest, first by uh, letters written to churches. So Romans the second Thess. Romans is the longest and it works its way down. And the second set are Paul's letters written to individuals, longest first to shortest. Okay, that's how it's organized. It's not super like, huh, that's how they did it? Yeah, that's how they did it. Uh, that's how the order that we have it in our Bible. It's not in the order that they were written or anything like that. So it's a little bit unfortunate that the pastoral epistles have been lumped together as, hey, that's only for the professionals. First Timothy is for all of us, as I hope we'll see this morning. So that's a quick high-level overview of the book. We feeling pretty good? We feeling pretty good? All right, all right. Now let's take a look at the first 11 verses of this amazing letter that Paul penned, Okay. Let me read it to you all the way through, 1 Timothy 1, 1 to 11. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrines nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship that is uh, from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for men who practice homosexuality, for enslavers, for liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God of which I have been entrusted. Okay, this 11 verses breaks up roughly into three sections. You've got an introduction, which we've talked about. It's from Timothy to Paul. We've talked about that a little bit. It's got verses 3 to 7, which is where Paul's kind of saying, hey, here's what I want you to stop. And Timothy, here's what I want to make sure you focus on. You don't forget. And then verses 8 through 11, which is, here's, like, here's what's not the issue. Paul's going to say, listen, there's some problems, but here's what's not the problem. The problem is not the law. Okay? So let's dive into those one at a time. We've already talked about the greeting a little bit, so we'll move past that. What to stop and what to aim for. So Paul points out two things in these early verses that he wants stopped. One is that he wants them to stop teaching different doctrine. Certain persons. It's like you tell your, 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 maybe your spouse, hey, you need to go deal with your kid. You can't even say his name. Like this Paul says, you need to deal with these certain persons who are teaching a different doctrine. Now, the fact that Paul says there's a different doctrine implies what? That there is already established a, 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 um, a set of doctrine by which we should be teaching from. And what that is, Paul's going to say later in 1 Timothy 6, he tells you what it is. He says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness... He's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. In other places in this letter, this, this doctrine is going to be called the faith, the truth, the sound doctrine, the teaching, the good deposit. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that says Jesus became man, fully God, fully man. He uh, lived a perfect life. He died a criminal's death. He was buried. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. And that by faith in him as a free gift, you can be reconciled to God. That is the sound doctrine that uh, Paul is saying, hey, People are teaching a different doctrine. They need to stop because that's not true. And the other thing he wants them to stop, not number three, the other thing he wants them to stop is devoting their time to myths and endless genealogies that lead to speculation rather than the stewardship from God that's by faith. Myths and endless genealogies, what in the world does that mean? Good question. So what was going on here? Because Paul's going to tell us in a couple of verses that these men wanted to be teachers of the law. Okay? Now, when the term law is used in your Bible, it refers to the first five books of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. So the law and the prophets, uh, you'll hear Jesus talk about the law and the prophets. That's what he means, the first five books of the Bible. So these men were wanting to be teachers of the law of the Pentateuch, but they didn't understand what they were talking about. And what, what was likely going on is that these guys, these certain persons, were getting hung up in all these genealogies, in the, in the law, and also in two other um, two other extra-biblical Jewish writings that were popular in the day. Uh, one was called the Book of Jubilees. And this is just like, this is extra credit. You don't have to worry about it. Uh, the, the Book of Jubilees, which documented, it retold the story of Israel from creation through the giving of the law with a lot more detail, and it embellished the genealogy section. The other one was the, ancient, uh, the Jewish Antiquities, according to Philo, um, was another popular book, which did the same thing. It retold the story of Israel from creation through the death of King Saul, 
And both of these books had in common these embellished genealogy sections. And so these guys were essentially like obsessing about their Ancestry.com profile. Okay, look, look I, I, I'm, I'm probably closer to the line of Aaron and Levi, which makes me a priest. And they were having all these discussions and these endless debates on this. And Paul says it was creating speculation. It was vain discussion. It was pulling people off the main thing. It was creating problems in the church. And Paul said, it's got to stop. It would be like if I pulled out my 23andMe profile and I was like, hey, we're going to have a debate on my 23andMe profile. And, and look, I think I'm closer in lineage to Troy Aikman than you are. Troy Aikman, the greatest quarterback that ever quarterbacked the Dallas Cowboys. That's right. Yeah. And so if I said, hey, we're going to have a debate about who's closer to Troy Aikman, because whoever's closer gets to be the captain of our flag football team. You'd be like, that's a waste of time. And that's what these guys were doing. They were pulling people off sides by, by these endless debates on genealogies. And Paul says, that's got to stop because that doesn't lead to a life that well, is well-ordered to the stewardship of God, which is saying, Paul says, listen, your whole life should be managed in such a way that it honors by faith God. And when you get people sidelined on genealogies and myths and other nonsense, when you teach about the law, but you don't even know what you're talking about, you're not moving people to ordering their life around God. And that's the task. Okay, and then Paul, right in the middle of that, he says, listen, this is what I want to stop, but here's what, Timothy, here's what you can't do. Here's what you got to keep doing. In verse 5, he says that the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience. And so while you've got some who are teaching, and their teaching is leading to division and speculation and vain discussions, our teaching, Timothy, your teaching, should be the target should be love. It should be love that has its origins in a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And listen to me, the goal of teaching, whether it's from me or whether it's from you in your small group, your community group, a Bible study, whether you're just having coffee with somebody, the goal, the aim of our teaching should always be to point people back to God, to live a life in full devotion to God that, uh, that is uh, grounded in love, that points people back to the fact that God loves them and reconciles them to, to himself through Jesus Christ. That's the point of all teaching, should drive us to that truth. That's the target. The target's not genealogies. The target's not anything else. It's love issuing from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. A teacher's job is not to create unnecessary debate or ill-advised controversy, Ill controversy. Now listen, there are times for a teacher to stand up and say, I'm going I'm to make a statement. It's going to seem controversial because the world's saying something completely different. There's a time and a place for that. But Paul's saying these guys were doing it about non-essential things, and it's creating problems in the church, and it's got to stop. And then Paul goes on to say, hey, listen, I told you that these guys want to be teachers of the law, and they don't know what they're talking about. But let me just remind you, Timothy, the issue is not the law. The problem that we're having here is not with the law, with the first five books of the Bible. And that reminded me as I was thinking about this, like, you guys ever see those websites, the kind of the click, clickbaity stuff that says like, you know, 30 things you're not using right, you know, or 30 things that you're, you've been using wrong. Well, I, I want to be efficient, and so I tend to get sucked into that. Like, well, what am I doing wrong? And I realized that, you know, the Chinese food container, it folds out into a plate. I just use it to carry my food from the restaurant to the house. I didn't know it was a plate. Now I'm wasting time getting a plate. I could have been using that. I didn't know that you're supposed to put liquids in the blender first and then the fruit because the liquid creates a vortex that pulls the fruit in. That's why my smoothies don't work well. I'm not using my blender right. Or you're supposed to put the conditioner in your hair starting from the ends and work your way in. 
because the ends are drier. And that explains why I look like this. I never knew. It's because I'm using my conditioner wrong. You're not supposed to use as much toothpaste as I use, apparently. JD just told me that it's not a backslash, it's a forward slash. I thought it was a backslash. Watermark.org forward slash health. I was like, is it a backslash? Have I been using that wrong? I, I question everything in my life now. And Paul says, listen, the issue is not with the blender or with the forward slash or with the, the Chinese food carrier. It's with how they're using it. The law has good. The law has its place. The law is meant to show us our inability to keep the law and to point us back to God to ask for mercy and for grace. The law was meant to act as a deterrent to keep us from doing dumb things, to restrain evil. It was to educate us, to teach us, and to exhort us. That's what the law is for. So the problem, Timothy, isn't the law. The problem is how they're using the law. They're putting their conditioner in at the ends instead of the, the, at the scalp instead of the ends. So, that's the first 11 verses. How are we feeling? Okay. Now, from those first 11 verses, as I prayed and processed, here's what I felt like, how do I move that to where we are today? So here's what I think uh, God would have me communicate with us this morning as we put wheels on this ship. That doesn't make sense. As we put <laughs> wheels on this cart, if you will. False teachers have always been in the church. And sound doctrine and discernment keeps us from being deluded by them. I think that's the big idea for us today. False teachers have always been in the church, and sound doctrine and discernment keeps us from being deluded by them. So first, let me unpack this in two parts. First, false teachers have always been in the church. What was happening in Ephesus wasn't the first time it happened, and it hasn't stopped happening then. What we see today in our culture, in our world, is not new territory. There's always been false teachers in the church. And it's our job to make clear, as we've said here for 20 years, we want to be firm on the areas that Scripture is firm, and we want to be flexible on the areas where Scripture is flexible. There's a lot in Scripture that's flexible, and there's some stuff in Scriptures that are not flexible. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, not flexible. Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins, being raised from the dead, not flexible. Salvation is a free gift of God, not as a result of works, not flexible. Jesus Christ is coming back in bodily form to get his church, not flexible. Now, what is flexible is, is like, when is he going to come back? In what manner? You know, is he going to come before the rapture? Like, questions that most of them are asking. There's some, like, well, we're not real sure. But what we do know is that he is coming back. How he's going to come back and the timing he's going to come back, there's some, reason, there's some reasons to like, here's what I think makes sense. Here's what I think. We can, we can disagree. But we can't disagree on the fact that he's not coming back. He is coming back. And so within the church, there are things we're going to hold tight to that we can't flex. And there's a lot of things we would say, man, I think there's room for a diversity of opinion. And it's our job as believers to recognize that there's always been people in the church that are going to want to pull us off sides on those things that are not flexible. And we've got to be aware. It was true in Ephesus. It's true today. The other thing I want us to be aware of is this is not just a preacher problem. Okay? False teaching makes its way into the church not just through guys that stand up on stages. False teaching makes its way into the church through guys like me who stand up on stage, but also through members of the body, through books we read, through podcasts we listen to, through con uh, conferences we go to, through social media. False teaching makes its way into the church in a variety of back doors. This is not just a preacher problem, although I'll tell you, it's a preacher problem in some churches. Let me give you really quickly, just so you can have some handholds, five examples of how false teaching 
makes its way into the church. These aren't the only five, but these are five I thought would be helpful. One, false teaching makes its way into the church through outright heresy, when people deny the core tenets of the faith. When they say to you, salvation is Jesus plus, and anything after the plus is not right. Salvation is a free gift. If they were to tell you that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, okay? These are things that we would call outright heresy. That's 2 Peter 2. And we'll, we'll put all these things in the sermon guide, and we'll try to push that out to you this week in the current. It can sneak in through those people who simply want to tickle your ears by saying things in a really creative way with zero substance. That's 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. And so you'll find guys and gals who will tell you, hey, Jesus wants you to live your best life now. He wants you to be happy. And there will be no mention of sin, of repentance, of judgment, of the need that there is one God and one mediator through man, uh, for man, Jesus Christ. And so there's going to be nothing that's going to make you uncomfortable because goodness gracious, I want you to be happy. And I'm not real concerned about your holiness. Men that tickle your ears. It can sneak its way into churches through uh, those that want to create speculation by taking minor issues and making them major issues. We just talked about that in 1 Timothy 1, 3. Um, it can sneak in through teaching that seeks to divide the church by creating factions. That's Jude 18 to 21. Folks who want to bring strife into the church and bring disunity by making certain practices like the marker of spirituality or by undermining church leadership and spreading it throughout the body, they want to create division and factions. It can come into the church as folks want to try and personally profit off of the flock. It's 1 Timothy 6. We'll see that later in the series. You'll find guys who want to exploit the church by saying, listen, God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. And the reason you're not is because you need to sow a $20 bill to our ministry. And if you do that, God will open the floodgates of heaven and your $20 will be returned to you fivefold. Or as we saw recently in the last couple of years, God wants you to send in money so that I can buy a $65 million jet to do God's work. And it's nonsense, and it's heresy, and it's false teachers, okay? False teachers have always been in the church, and sound doctrine and discernment keeps us from being deluded by them. So the solution, according to Paul, as we're going to see in this book that he's giving Timothy of sound doctrine and discernment, he's going to say to Timothy throughout the rest of this letter, hey, Timothy, I need you to wage the good warfare. I need you to hold faith, hold, holding faith and a good conscience. That's 1 Timothy 1.18. Timothy, I need you to train yourself in godliness. 1 Timothy 4.7. Timothy, I need you to devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. 1 Timothy 4.13. Timothy, I need you to practice. I need you to immerse yourself in these things, in the sound doctrine, so you're not going to be shaken. 1 Timothy 4.15. Timothy, I need you to keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching, so you don't let bad theology, bad doctrine, slip into the body. 1 Timothy 4.16. Timothy, I need you to persist in all of this because that's what's going to save you and it's going to save those that are listening to you. That's 1 Timothy 4.16. Timothy, I need you to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. That's 1 Timothy 6.11. The solution to bringing the church back into focus is for Timothy, for you to teach and exhort the body to not get sidelined by all this nonsense. Teach the sound doctrine, Timothy. Fight to make sure we stay on track. How are we doing? What does this look like in real life? Let me give you a couple of examples. Here's what it looked like in Acts 17. Paul, after he got shuttled out of Thessalonica and created a riot, he goes over to Berea. And it says that when Paul went to Berea, in verse 11 of chapter 17, he says the Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word of God with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. 
So they heard Paul, they were excited about it, and then they went and fact-checked Paul. Is he feeding us something that's not good? Is he feeding us nasty, boiled Brussels sprouts that nobody wants to eat? Or is he feeding us the truth? So for us today, here's what it might look like. It might look like you and I spending time in God's Word individually and corporately in our community groups with our friends, reading and discussing and studying and processing, praying together. Bible study, guys, should be a team sport. Now, it's, it's totally great if you want to have time carved out in the morning and the evening to get alone with God's Word and your Bible. And of course, you have to have your cup of coffee because it doesn't work if you don't. Um, and so that's awesome. But listen, you were meant to live in community. Study God's Word together. He says, Paul, Paul said, don't neglect the public reading of Scripture. Read Bible together. Ask, hey, what, is this, what do you think this is saying? What do you think God's trying to communicate in this passage? Here's what I think. Does that make sense? It might look like you today, after you listen to me finish talking, going back with your Bible and your friends, hey, was what Leventhal was saying, was that true? And if it wasn't, flush it. And if it was, ask, Lord, what do I need to do to alter my life to fall more in line with your truth? It, makes, it should look like you and I thinking more critically about the books we're reading, about the podcasts we're subscribing to, the conferences we attend, because just because something is labeled Christian does not make it Christian. And we are allowing, I think, far too often than we would like to admit, um, false teaching to seep its way into our brain and into our heart. All of these things that I've talked about lead us to an ability to have greater and greater discernment. Discernment is being able to take, uh, to look at something and determine, is it real or is it fake? That's what discernment does. Have you guys heard the, the sort of the story that the way they teach government employees to spot counterfeit bills is by studying all the time on the, on the real ones. Have you guys heard that? So I've heard that for years too. And I was like, is that true? So I did some research. And you know what? It turns out that's basically true. That's what they do. They, they study real money and they get to know it really, really well so they can spot the fake one. But while I was doing this research, I discovered something on the U.S. Treasury's website that I thought was kind of interesting. They have a list of, here's eight things you should do if you think you've been given counterfeit money. Okay, eight things. And the eighth thing, of course, is to uh, hand it over to a properly identified police officer or secret service agent. Okay, of course. But they have this note at the bottom of the website that made me kind of chuckle. Here's what it says. Please note, there is no financial remuneration for the return of a counterfeit bill, but it is doing the right thing to help combat counterfeiting. Here's what that got me thinking on. It real, I realized that that means the government is saying, I am responsible for a counterfeit bill. So if I choose to accept a counterfeit bill, because I don't know what a fake one looks like, once I choose to accept it, I am now responsible for it. And I can do one of two things with that counterfeit bill. I can give it to you, which would be bad, or I can turn it in. And if I turn it in, they're not going to give me a real 20 to thank me for their fake 20. Okay, I'm out the money but it's my responsibility to know what to do with that fake dollar bill. And I think that's the same is true for us. We are responsible for the teachings we choose to accept and we are responsible for the teachings we choose to share with others. And so if you can't spot the fake and you're inadvertently sharing the fake with other people, you're responsible. I'm responsible. And can I just gently remind you that... Um, especially to our high school students and our young adults, that just because something has a lot of likes or has been shared a lot of times doesn't make it true. There's a lot of nonsense on social media 
that people keep forwarding because it's, it's pithily worded. It's, oh, man, that's so well said. Or that seems intuitive, and it's absolute garbage. So just because it has a 1,000 likes on it doesn't make it a 1,000 times right. It just makes it garbage that's been liked a 1,000 times. And you and I are responsible. How are we doing at training ourselves for godliness? We need to chase after that which is true, which is what Paul told Timothy to do, all those things I just read to you, we're responsible for doing the same thing, for fighting the good fight, for immersing ourselves in God's word, for being around God's people to sharpen our thinking. How are we doing? Are you more familiar with the Enneagram than you are with Ezra or Esther or Ephesians or Ecclesiastes or any other book that starts with an E? Are you more concerned with your podcasts than you are with the Psalms? Are you more concerned about filling up your library with the latest Christian pop book than you are with filling your mind and your heart with God's word? We are responsible for what we take in and there's a lot of nonsense being peddled out in the world today being called Christian and it's not and you're responsible and I'm responsible and it's okay if you're a day one believer, it's okay. You may say, I don't know how to do that. That's okay. You're on a journey. It's not a, it's not a, you're not competing with anybody else in the room. Day by day, you just walk with Jesus and you open your Bible. Okay, God, what would you have me do today? And those days will turn into weeks and those weeks into months, months into years, years into decades. And you'll look up and you'll say, man, I am so much more discerning today than I was a week ago, a year ago, 10 years ago. Because we're growing in God. So you don't have to have all the answers today. You just got to be committed to going to God's word to find the answers, to going to God's people to talk about it. This doesn't make sense. We should repeatedly be asking ourselves if the content we're taking in is going to lead to speculation and vain discussions, or if it's going to help order my life in such a way that everything is stewarded by faith to the glory of God. And if it's not, we need to jettison it. And Paul took that really seriously. Because he knew that false teachers have always been the church and sound doctrine and discernment keeps us from being deluded by them. Paul lived his life. Once Jesus got a hold of him, he went all in on this truth. And he lived his full life and he suffered greatly for his faith. He's going to write another letter to Timothy. We call it 2 Timothy. How creative. And in this other letter to Timothy, he tells Timothy, listen, Timothy, I'm in chains. I've suffered. Uh, he's pretty sure he's going to die but it's been worth it. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. And so he tells Timothy, Timothy, join with me in suffering for the gospel. And he says, Timothy, listen, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Timothy, if you do what I'm asking you to do, if you, if, because I've done what Jesus asked me to do, it has cost me greatly. And Paul got his head lopped off in a Roman prison. Timothy took that call seriously. And according to church tradition, he spent the next decades serving and loving in the church in Ephesus. And church tradition says somewhere about 97 AD, he would have been an old man at this point, Timothy saw a bunch of folks going out uh, to celebrate one of the idols in the, in, the, in, the, in the town, in the city. And it was this deal. And so Timothy goes to this mob and he rebukes them. He tries to remind them that there, there are no other idols. There's only one God. And he called them to repent. And they turned on him and they beat him to death in 97 AD. It cost him his life. And I want you to hear me say, we are growing in a world that is increasingly becoming more and more intolerant 
of Christianity. More and more tolerant of everything else and more and more intolerant of somebody who says, I think there's an objective truth. I think there's a right and a wrong. I think what God said, I think he meant it. There's one way, there's one means by which man can be saved and it's through Jesus Christ. And as our world becomes increasingly intolerant, are you, am I gonna be ready to suffer for it like Paul did, like Timothy did? Paul wraps up his second letter to Timothy in chapter four. He says, listen, Timothy, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And he's asking us the same question. Are we going to fulfill our ministry? Father, thank you for Paul, for his faithfulness. Thank you for Timothy, his faithfulness. God, thank you that you have left these letters to us to remind us of what's true, to remind us of how we can live our lives uh, with confidence, knowing that, um, that one day you are coming back, knowing that, that we have staked our life on that which is true. And God, I know that there are people in this room who are trying to figure out if this whole thing is even true. And I pray for their hearts that you would draw them to you. I pray that those of us who know you would be emboldened to study your word, to uh, be diligent to uh, make sure we understand sound doctrine, to be gentle and kind in the way we share it with other people, to remember that we were once lost, separated far from you, and we needed grace, and we needed kindness, and we needed your gospel to come in and penetrate our heart, just like our friends around us might need that. Would you help us to be all of those things for them? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.